Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 382nd episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a remarkable lady who is to the disability rights movement what Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was to the civil rights movement and Gloria Steinem is to the feminist movement, namely a fearless trailblazer who has done nothing less than change the course of history for millions of people in America and around the world. Indeed, she has been fighting discrimination against herself and others with disabilities for more than 50 years, suing to become the first wheelchair user ever to teach in a New York City classroom, helping to organize the first Center for Independent Living, leading the 504 sit-in, the longest ever takeover of a federal building in American history, which forced the signing of regulations to enact Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973 and compel hospitals, universities, and any other entity taking money from the federal government to remove obstacles to services for people with disabilities, serving under President Clinton as an assistant secretary in the Office of Special Education and Rehabilitation Services, and under President Obama as the first ever special advisor for international disability rights at the U.S. Department of State, and the list goes on. Named one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential Women of the Past Century, she recently authored with Kristen Joyner the memoir Being Human, an Unrepentant Memoir of a Disability Rights Activist. And she also appears in James Lebrecht and Nicole Newnham's Netflix documentary feature, Crip Camp, which shows how the disability movement grew out of a summer camp in Hunter, New York, and which won the U.S. Documentary Audience Award at the 2020 Sundance Film Festival and is now nominated for the Best Documentary Feature Oscar. I'm talking about a person who should be a household name, Judith Human. Over the course of our conversation, the 73-year-old and I discuss how being stricken with polio at the age of 18 months shaped her childhood and her desire to challenge injustices, how her time as a camper and a counselor at Camp Gened helped her to find a community of others facing similar challenges and to become a leader within it, what led her to transition from teaching to activism, and what some of the biggest challenges have been that she's faced along the way, plus much more. And so without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Miss Human, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Uh, it's a great honor to have you. And on this podcast, we always go through the big moments in our guests' life and career. And so uh, I'd like to start right at the very beginning. If you could just share with our listeners, where were you born and raised and what did your parents do for a living? So I was born in Philadelphia. That's kind of a little secret. Okay. People who see my passport know that. Um, <laughs> I was conceived and born in Philadelphia, but only lived there three months. Okay. And then my parents moved to um, Brooklyn. Okay. So I lived in Brooklyn until I was 25. And um, my father was a butcher. Uh, my mother, it's not really exactly right to call her a housewife. Because mm -hmm. she worked half time for my father doing the bookkeeping and my aunt, my late aunt, worked half time doing the bookkeeping. And then, of course, it was me and my two brothers. But my mother was always active in like the PTA or neighborhood associations or so she was an unpaid laborer. Yes, yes. My parents also are from Germany. So yeah. they were immigrants. Mm -hmm. And you, I, I, I know you... They and you lost quite a few 
family members in the Holocaust, right? Yes. So we lost, I mean, honestly, I don't know all of who we lost, but we lost my grandparents on both sides and great grandmothers, one on each side. Then my grandfather, my mother's side had no siblings, but my grandmother on my mother's side had a sister and a daughter. And yeah, I don't know how many others. It was something that we never really, really discussed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, we discussed many things, but yeah. Sure. Well, I know that the development that really set the trajectory of your life in, in a lot of ways happened probably well before you could even remember what was going on. You were 18 months old, I believe, when, like a lot of people at that time, I, I think it was sort of a, an uptick in the uh, polio epidemic, you contracted it. And I just wonder, because there's a lot of younger people listening who may not even really understand how big a thing polio was in this country and what it is. And just, I wonder if you can share just a little bit about what it is and how it can affect someone. Yeah. So as you said, Scott, I had polio in 1949. It was a virus. So it came in your body and it left. And um, it was contagious. So, you know, I went, I don't remember this, but I was in the hospital for a number of months and I had, I was apparently in an iron lung. So polio, polio could affect you like nothing. You had it, you maybe didn't even know you had it or it affected you a little bit or it could affect you in different parts of your body. And bulbar polio was one type and I had, I had the bulbar polio and the paralytic uh, type. So I'm a quadriplegic, meaning I don't walk. I have use of my hands, uh, limited use of my arms and weakness in my hands. Mm-hmm. And um, yes, yeah, so I don't stand. I can't lift my arms over my head. And then there were people who, like the late Ed Roberts, who was one of the leaders in the disability movement, he had polio also, and he slept in an iron lung all the time. Uh, and basically it, it breathes for you. Mm-hmm. And so um, full extremes, people yeah. had polio where it comes, didn't affect you that much when you were younger, but as you're getting older, it's, it's, it destroys muscles. And so the way I like to talk about it is if normally a muscle set of five would do something, the polio might've affected any one of a number of the five. Mm-hmm. And so you may learn how to do whatever you're doing with, let's say three, but over time, those muscles can wear. And so you might experience more weakness. Mm-hmm. Um, but Franklin Roosevelt was president. He had polio. Right. Yeah. 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 So. Now, and you knew no other way of life. Some people got it at a point where after having lived uh, very differently before that. So I guess there's a difference between facing discrimination and knowing that you're facing discrimination. Right. And so as a as a young kid, the first sort of thing that it seems like you ran up against was just enrolling in, I don't know if you would call it kindergarten or day school or whatever, but 
I'm not sure how aware of this you even were at the time, but can you just share what kind of nonsense you and your mother were coming up against at that early of an age? So let me say that um, the backdrop to this is I polio, as you mentioned, in 49. Mm -hmm. So it was like 52, 53. I'm the oldest of three. And so my mother uh, took me to school. I, I used a wheelchair and um, I remember this broadly. Uh, she pulled me up the steps and um, when she went to register me, the principal said, no, I couldn't go to that school because I would be a fire hazard. There were no laws at that time. No Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, no Section 504, no Americans with Disabilities Act. And I think another very important point is my mother didn't really know other families who had, that she was friendly with. Because she knew other people who had polio because I was in the hospital and then in and out of other hospitals. So, um, but I think, you know, my parents, like many immigrants, want to believe that, you know, they're in the country where all is possible. That is true. All is possible. And uh, the principal told my mom not to worry that the Board of Education in New York City would send a teacher to my house. And they did, not for kindergarten at all. And then for the first, second, third, and a half of the fourth grade, twice a week, once for an hour, once for an hour and a half. And so that was very clear that there really um, was not an ex... They either thought that kids on home instruction were brilliant and we didn't need to worry about really learning mm -hmm. or they didn't think that learning was important. And I think, of course, the latter is what was true. And at that time, I mean, there was also, a, it seems like, a significant, a significantly higher number of people who would even send their children with disabilities off to institutions and stuff, right? I mean, t stuff that today would be appalling to us, that was not that uncommon, right? Well, I learned when I was 36 that a doctor, when I was two, had recommended to my parents that I be put in an institution. And I was actually reading something yesterday that a friend of mine wrote, and I didn't know this had happened to him, too. He had cerebral palsy, and the doctor... Um, said that he should be put in an institution. And uh, my friend, Neil, his father and mother uh, were in concentration camps. And so in, in my book, Being Human, one of the things I say is I didn't think my parents would have supported my going into an institution because of what happened in Germany. Same thing with my friend's father, that he wasn't about to do that. But I think the point that you're making is very important because uh, definitely doctors were suggesting that kids be put in institutions and there were not a lot of supports that families were able to get. And so there were state institutions for the quote unquote mentally retarded all over the United States. Many of them have now been closed, but uh, institutionalization was something that was pretty typical. So 
all of this was going on in terms of the kind of um, charting your course, obviously with limited knowledge of probably on your part of what was and wasn't the proper treatment of a, of a child. But then what, I guess it leads to a moment that I've read about when I think you were, I don't know, uh, not even 10 years old, when you first realized you say you first felt treated differently and it was not by a school or a principal or anybody. It was just another kid, right? Yeah. So I was about eight years old and a friend of mine, I didn't ha now I use a motorized wheelchair, mm -hmm. but at that time there weren't any motorized wheelchairs. Right. So my friend and I uh, had been given permission to go around the corner to the candy store. She was a little older than I was. And um, we were going up Avenue D and this boy came over who I didn't know and my friend didn't know and said, you know, are you sick? And it became this, for me, in my mind, this big issue of somebody noticing that I wasn't walking, I was using a wheelchair, and putting the word sick with it. Mm -hmm. And sick has all kinds of negative connotations. And uh, it was really at that point that I started thinking more about things that I had not been allowed to do. Mm -hmm. not go to school, um, inaccessible housing uh, that friends lived in, and that if you were sick, you didn't really participate. And so I've also learned since then that this is a common experience for kids with disabilities to um, begin to see themselves differently. I mean, mm -hmm. I knew that I had a disability. It wasn't like someone explained to me that, oh, you're using a wheelchair. I knew all that. But um, I, the word sick is something that had not been applied. Right. And I think the word sick is still something that people think many disabled people are. And if you think about someone as being sick, you don't really think about getting close to them. Mm -hmm. uh, you kind of want to stay away from people who are sick, especially, you know, if you think it's contagious. Mm -hmm. um, so that was a real eye-opening experience for me. Now, at the same time, I was in Brownies. And there, I think what was very interesting was I was the only kid who used a wheelchair in the troupe. And many of the kids that were in the troop were my friends before. And we just learned how to adapt. So I participated in most activities because as kids, we would figure out how to what we would call today, make an accommodation. But it was just something naturally that we did because we didn't want to be excluding people. Well, I think this all kind of contextualizes why it was such a meaningful thing for you, I guess, about a year after that encounter with the kid who asked you if you were sick to begin the first of, I don't know, I think nine or 10 summers in a row at this place that is at the center of this now Oscar nominated documentary, Crep Camp, uh, Camp Jened. And I wonder if you can just share 
you know, for people who may not have seen the film yet or uh, have only heard a bit about it, just how did that even cross your radar? I I cannot, uh, it, it, I think that for most of you who wound up there, you were seeing people in numbers like yourself who you had never, that you had never seen before, right? Well, I, okay, so first, I was on home instruction, as I said, till the middle of the fourth grade. Mm-hmm. Then when I finally did get to go to school, it was a regular school building in the basement and the classes were all disabled children. So actually, all the kids in my classrooms had disability, did not even go to lunch with the non-disabled children. We were, it was a racially integrated program and we were totally segregated from the non-disabled children except once a week if there was an assembly. And then we were able to go to the assembly with the non-disabled children. Now, the first camp that I went to actually was not Jeanette. I went to a camp called Oakhurst, uh, which was run by the Jewish Federation. And the camp is still um, in New Jersey. And that was the first time that I had ever slept away from home was when I was nine. Um, My brothers went to camp. They were younger than I was, so they went later. But they went to Camp Wellmet. And they didn't have kids with physical disabilities or I presume deafness or blindness or mobility disabilities. And, um, but I couldn't go there, obviously. And I think Oakhurst was great. I was like 9, 10, 11. Mm -hmm. And then I think when I was 12, I went to Jeanette. And um, why did we go to camp? Camp was a big thing in New York where you're from Connecticut. Did you go to to camp? I did. uh, Yeah. One summer I went to uh, a place in in Maine where I got immediately got mono. So I was out of commission for the entire time. But then uh, for many years, I went to tennis camp in in Amherst, Massachusetts. Yeah. Okay. So camp, I don't know about California, but on the East Coast, a lot of kids go to camp, certainly then. And um, I went from, so a number of the kids in the classes that I was in went to camp. And um, then Jeanette had more time at camp. Oakhurst, you could only go for three weeks. Jeanette had two four-week sessions, and you could actually stay for both. So I think the first summer I went for a month, then a couple years I went for two months. And it was, you know, it was great fun. One is, you know, away from your family. Not that I didn't love my family, but (laughs) also my father worked six days a week. And if I hadn't gone to camp, um, I would have been just stuck at home because nothing was accessible, you know? So it allowed me and many others to go to a place where we had a good time, you know, all kinds of activities. Just remind me, and I may have missed you saying this, but uh, how did you even hear of Jenna? Because there was, it wasn't like there were many places like this at the time, right? Oh, there were a fair number of camps for disabled really? kids. At that time yeah. already? Okay. Yeah. I think there are fewer now. But hmm. Oakhurst and Jeanette and the Carolians and a number of others. And 
I presume that parents learned about it from social workers at the school. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, and then maybe word of mouth, but sure, could have been from the Jewish Federation. I, I really don't sure. know, but the camps my brother went to were Jewish camps, and mm -hmm. but I think Oakhurst and then Jeanette, which Crip Camp is based on, were learning opportunities, as I think most good camps are. I mean, you went to tennis camp for a number of years, but you learned more at tennis camp than just playing tennis, right? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, yeah. being together with it. Yeah, what were yes. you gonna say? Yeah, I know where you're going. <laughs> it's the it's all about guys and girls. It's getting to hang out, of course. <laughs> exactly. And in many ways, many of us really couldn't do that right. in the city because again, of accessibility. So right. it was really an opportunity for kids to be growing up in a way that was more difficult during the year. But I also think it was a great opportunity for us to really, you know, be coming into ourselves. Well, it's it seems like, I mean, you you were really in your element there from what we see in the film, which is not just as a camper, but it seems like at a certain point you became a, I assume, paid counselor, right? Yeah. So I was, when the scene in Crip Camp or the footage from the camp, that was done in 1971. So I was actually out of college. Yes. And so I had started teaching. I had this lawsuit, um, which ultimately resulted in my getting a teaching license for a couple of years. And I think, you know, for people like Jimmy Lebrecht, one of the directors of the film, you know, he has said to me that meeting me having filed a lawsuit to get my job was a big deal because it was allowing the kids and counselors, for that matter, to really begin to have more discussions on discrimination. I think you were inferring that earlier on a couple of minutes ago. Um, discrimination, the word discrimination, was really not being utilized in the 50s and 60s in the area of disability, uh, like it was in the area of race mm -hmm. and gender. And so, you know, it's very common for a family to be a white family, a black family, Chinese family, you know, Jamaican family. So you have mother, father, siblings, aunts, uncles, who look like you in many cases and um, have experiences. And you can learn through them about experiences they may have been having, good, bad, whatever. Uh, in the case of disability, like no one else in my family had a disability. Some of the older people might have had other kinds of disabilities, but there were no kids who had polio or other disabilities. And so there really was not the ability to have discussion with peers where they could really understand you. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, my parents and many other parents were, you know, very loving and understood that what was going on was wrong. But because the word discrimination wasn't being used, I think, you know, over time, my parents definitely understood it. They got it pretty quickly, actually. Mm -hmm. um, but there were no 
lawsuits or complaints at that point because A, they were immigrants, B, um, they didn't know lawyers, right. and C, and maybe that's A, they wouldn't have thought about litigating. You know, it's something you have to kind of learn about and figure out how to do. Well, that's why I don't want to gloss over. I mean, this this lawsuit that you've mentioned about becoming a teacher in the New York City school system is a is a landmark because a well because of what you're talking about that there just weren't many people doing that sort of thing. Here you are, just to sort of set the scene, having graduated with honors from Long Island University, right? You want to be a teacher, and you're totally qualified in every way. And they are, the board of examiners is saying, you know, sorry, you need to show us how you use, how you use the bathroom and all kinds of insane offensive stuff. Right. So if you can just take us into your mindset at that point, how, what you're running up against there and how you did wind up in court. So first of all, I graduated, but I don't think I graduated with, I wasn't, you know, cum laude or anything, but. So what was basically going on is I was interested in being a teacher. I was interested in being a teacher, I guess, when I was in high school. And um, friends of mine, I, I went to Sheepstead Bay High School, and there I was in regular classes uh, for the last three years, sophomore, junior, senior. And our homeroom was only with disabled students, which is another issue we could discuss. But... Um, my friends who were older than I told me, don't tell, it's called the Department of Rehabilitation. It's a significantly federally funded program that exists in every state. And uh, they will help uh, some people go to school, go to trade school, university, whatever, and help you uh, support you through school to get a job. And my friend said, look, do not tell them you want to be a teacher because they will only support you to go into a program where you can show them someone like yourself has that type of a job. And honestly, none of us knew anyone who had gotten a teaching license when using a wheelchair. And so I majored in speech and theater. I minored in education. And in my freshman or sophomore year, I called the American Civil Liberties Union because I just wanted to say, I want to be a teacher. I'm taking the courses I need. Um, I have a feeling that I may be denied the job. And they said, well, go through school, take your courses, take the exams. If you have a problem, call us. So I did just that. Took my courses. Had a, at that time, in New York, because it was the baby boom era, they needed teachers. And so you didn't have to be a major. You had to have taken four courses. And um, I took those courses. I did well in those courses. Interestingly, none of my professors ever asked me why I was taking classes to be a teacher. Um, and then when I graduated, um, you had to take three exams, a written, oral, and medical, and they were all offered in completely inaccessible buildings. So again, that would not be legal today. 
But so I had friends who carried me up and down the stairs. And um, when I went for, I passed my written, I passed my oral, and I um, went to get my medical exam. And as you were saying, Scott, I had an older doctor who was amazingly prejudiced. I, I could never have believed some of the questions that she was asking me and you were alluding to it. But one question she asked me was, could I show her how I went to the bathroom? And I was like 21. And I remember being with her and thinking, oh my God, I can't believe she's asking me this. She has no right to ask me this. What am I gonna say? And so I just said, well, if other teachers were required to show their kids how to go to the bathroom, I would be able to do that. Um, and then it just was more downhill than mm -hmm. you could even think, you know. She learned that I used to use crutches and braces. She wanted me to bring them back. I had to come for a second interview. And uh, I brought an advocate. They wouldn't let the advocate in the room. She had another two doctors. It was, I, I, as I was going through this, I thought, nobody is ever going to believe this story. It is so outrageous. Mm -hmm. And um, so then when I got my letter saying that it was denied my license, specifically paralysis of both lower extremities, sequelae of poliomyelitis. And um, I, I expected that, but I didn't. You know, you always want to hope. And so I called the ACLU. And I you know, told them, they said, call us back if there's a problem. I'd like to come in for a meeting. And the man I spoke to said, he'd call me back. And he called me back and said, no, there was no need for a meeting because I had not been discriminated against. I had been denied my license for medical reasons that I couldn't walk. So I think that the ACLU has really changed over the last 50 years, 60 years, but very much spoke to clearly what was going on. One of the most progressive legal rights groups in the U.S. and around the world is saying That's crazy. that they wouldn't yeah. even talk to me because it was a medical decision. That speaks to the times, mm -hmm. and we're, we're not over those times yet. It's just better where people looked at everything disability related as medical and health. And again, no, it's not discrimination. You can't walk, how could you teach? And um, so, I mean, basically what happened was I did nothing on outreaching to media. A friend of mine worked at, uh, from the time I was a student at Long Island University in Brooklyn where I went and he, I think was doing an internship at the New York Times and he got a reporter to write a story. And so on a Wednesday, there was a story about basically summarizing what I just said. Then the next day there was an editorial in the New York Times that supporting my getting a teaching mm -hmm. license. That same day I received a call from a man named Roy Lucas, who 
later on became an attorney in the Roe versus Wade case before the Supreme Court. But he called me because he was writing a book on civil rights, human rights, and he'd seen this story and he wanted to talk to me about discrimination in the area of disability. And I had been reluctant, fearful, uncertain about whether or not I actually wanted to go forward with the lawsuit because I kept thinking, well, what happens if I can't do a good job? Would this have an impact on all future disabled people getting a job as a teacher? But after speaking with him on the phone, I really liked him. And I kind of just blurted out and said, would you represent me? And he said, yes. And then the next day, a customer from my father's butcher store came in and said he would represent me. So they did it together. So there was a New York Times piece on a Wednesday. Yeah. There was an um, editorial piece on Thursday. And then that Thursday, I got a call from the Today Show asking me <laughs> if I would be on the Today Show. And Scott, that was really, I mean, first of all, the reason I mentioned earlier that I didn't do any outreach to the media. I mean, I was just out of college. Um, I wasn't part of any group. I had friends with disabilities, but at that point we hadn't set an organization up. And so when I got this call to do the Today Show, I was, of course I'm gonna do it. I'm not gonna not do it. How could you not do it? And thought, well, it's trial by fire. Well, and I, I know that, you know, you've noted that you also, as this case actually progressed, you're assigned a judge who happens to be the first African-American woman on the federal bench who probably understood discrimination better than many and uh, basically avoided this, helped to prevent this from going as far as it could have gone by basic, by just telling the board of examiners, you know, make this work, Right. Well, she, her name was Constance Baker Motley. And um, she basically told them that she encouraged them to relook. So we actually never had a court ruling because she told them, do another exam. They did it. I got my license. We tried to get damages, but they did not support damages. Which, I mean, obviously for the time, that makes complete sense. But retrospectively, it's kind of too bad because it, I think that really reinforces what I've been saying about discrimination. Um, it wasn't really thought of as discrimination or that pain was inflicted. But it was wonderful that she was the judge because um, she had definitely been involved before going into the court with other civil rights cases. And then she herself had experienced discrimination. Sure. Well, and I think um, another kind of just eye-opening development is that as you now could go into a classroom to teach, where do you wind up? But back in the basement at the school where you had been a student, right? I mean, you can't make this up. Right. I mean, what happened was um, I had my license and then I was looking for a job. Many of the schools were not accessible. 
and uh, the principal, Mr. Greenwald, um, he called and offered me a position. So I knew the school was accessible, um, but my license was not for special ed. My license was for regular ed. So I taught three years, first year special ed classes and the next two years uh, regular second grade. But what was really important about my teaching uh, special ed was it's the first time that the students in these classes had ever had a professional adult disabled person in a major job. And there was a teacher who had, um, oh, she might not have been there anymore. She had a significant limp when I was there, but that was it. And yeah. I don't think she was there anymore. And of course, you know, I was the first wheelchair user to be hired. Mm -hmm. So we learned that there were some teachers who had been hired and then gotten MS, multiple sclerosis or something and were beginning to use wheelchairs. Mm -hmm. But and at, around the same time, and I didn't know this till after, uh, there was someone who was blind who had a similar lawsuit because he was also denied, <laughs> but didn't have any publicity. And then New York State, uh, the state legislature passed a law allowing disabled people to teach. So that's only in the early 70s. It's not that long ago. Uh, and and so I guess a, a key question is just in terms of a big turning point and another turning point in your life. Why, after three years, after fighting so hard to become a teacher, did you decide to then focus, as you've done ever since, on activism initially with your, I believe it's the organization that you started, Disabled in Action, right? Yeah, so after I was denied the license, a friend, group of friends of mine, we, because there was publicity going on and I was getting letters and phone calls and people stopping on the street. We took all these names and addresses and phone numbers and invited people to a meeting where we set up this group called Disabled in Action. And it is still around across disability advocacy organization. The reason I um, left teaching, I wasn't actually looking at leaving teaching. So in New York at that time, you had to have a master's in five years. And because transportation was not accessible, um, getting, and, and I had a accessible car service that I ordered, which for that time was like, I think $10 each way a lot of money mm -hmm. and um, they didn't typically run at night. And I had taken one class at Columbia while I was teaching and a friend drove me to and fro, but I thought it would make sense for me just to go to school full time and it would take two years to get a master's. So at the time when I went to graduate school, I wasn't thinking of leaving teaching. Um, I had, I was the president of Disabled in Action um, I was, we were very involved. We had, if you watch Crip Camp, you'll see mm -hmm. there was a demonstration on Madison Avenue. Mm -hmm. I was one of the people involved with mm -hmm. that. So DIA was a very politically active group. But then when I left New York, I went to get my graduate degree at Berkeley 
and got involved with a group called the Center for Independent Living. That's when I really moved to from being an advocate and a teacher to just being an advocate because it was too much to do. And did you move to Berkeley because of grad school or because of the offer from Ed Roberts to come join him with this uh, Center for Independent Living? I moved to Berkeley to go to graduate school Mm -hmm. and to get involved with CIL. But if graduate school wouldn't have been a part of it, I wouldn't have done it because mm-hmm. I was looking at getting my master's in two years and going back to teaching. Right. So, but while I was in uh, graduate school, I got very involved with CIL. I got on the board and I also had to do a placement for my master's. And I, I got a job in Washington working for Senator Harrison Williams. So yeah, I stayed on the board at CIL while I was uh, working for the Senator. And it was a great experience because I, it was in the middle of the individuals with what was then called the Educational Handicapped Children's Act. So I was working with the key people who'd been working on this legislation for years. And I was meeting advocates in D.C. who were working on this. And Section 504 had become law in 1973, which was the demonstrations that we had in New York and D.C. were around that. So I I just want to pause for one second to note about with the Center for Independent Living, because I, uh, you know, former Senator Tom Harkin, described you as, quote, the mother of the independent living movement, close quote, which has affected a lot of people's lives in in a very positive way and really didn't exist before, as far as I understand, well, before what you and Ed Roberts were doing. So I wonder just if, you know, to, to further make sure that people understand what we're talking about, why were centers for independent living so revolutionary? The first center was in Berkeley. It was started by Ed Roberts Phil Draper, John Hessler, a bunch of people. It was the outgrowth of the Disabled Student Services Office on Berkeley at the college campus. And it it was established in part because the university wouldn't allow non-students to get services. And so what the Disabled Student Services Office and then CIL, uh, so it was staffed and is staffed by a majority disabled people. And when CIL was first uh, created, it was different than DIA um, because it did advocacy and it also was providing support services. Like if you needed a place to live, it could help you find a place that was accessible. If you needed personal assistance, it was interviewing people and giving had lists of people that were interested in doing that work and you could interview them and you would hire them yourself. Um, it was doing community work, um, elevating issues around uh, disability, accessibility, discrimination. It was like really um, kind of going into a candy store and picking up all these issues that needed to be addressed. And it was a young, vibrant group of 
disabled activists um, who were working together. And um, yeah, as you were asking, I never would have gone to Berkeley if it wasn't for graduate school. Mm -hmm. And my life would be quite different Yeah, because I was really able to mix um, activism. And, and quite frankly, I remember when I first went out to Berkeley, I think New York's activism was more aggressive than in California. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. over time, that changed also in the Bay Area, mm -hmm. but with the 504 demonstrations and others. Um, but I think one of the important parts of the CILs, and certainly at that point when I was involved with the Berkeley CIL, um, we were really looking at not a limited scope of, of issues. We were looking at creating or an organization that was staffed by and working with and for people with all types of disabilities, where discrimination is something that we understood and got it and were fighting against, and where there was a lot of brain power. And so we were working on you know, local, county, and state laws, working on federal laws. Um, and then Ed Roberts also became, he was the director of CIL, and he then became the director of the California Department of Rehabilitation and used uh, some of the federal state money to set up 10 centers for independent living. Now, why are these organizations important? They're important because they really are working on with people on empowerment, on being able to uh, work for change and really facilitating people recognizing that disability is a normal part of life, that discrimination is something that exists, that we had to speak up and out about it. And we had to do more than just talk about problems. So a lot of what CIL and the CILs today were problem solvers. And, you know, there's so many different types of problems and discrimination. So it's with government, it's with the public and private sector, state and local government. Um, and now I think there are like 700 around the United States. Um, and then in Asia and Europe. And so there... There are 10 in Pakistan. That's amazing. You know, they're really, and, and most of them are not large, but the really powerful, effective groups are seen very much as change agents. And I think people understand that if you're going to go up against a CIL, you really better have your act together because mm -hmm. they are many of them quite unique in the people, the knowledge of the people. And part of that is because it affects them personally as well mm -hmm. as a bigger group. Oh, it's incredible. Uh, and, you know, obviously that's a big part of your uh, legacy. And another big part, as you referred to, would be the, the 504 sit-ins. And I just want to chronologically point out to people so you moved out to Berkeley in 73, right? Which is the same year that Nixon signs the Rehabilitation Act, but does not 
just as Ford does not really enforce five section five oh four, which I will I will leave it to you to kind of explain why that was so problematic. But finally, all right, you get through Nixon, you get through Ford, and now you get Carter and you figure maybe here's somebody who's gonna be more sympathetic to you guys, and instead he appoints uh Califano uh as the um what they then I guess call it not anymore health education and welfare, yeah. And he's dragging his feet on on enforcement. So why was section five oh what I guess let me set it up this way if I can. What was section five oh four and why was after, you know, being made to wait for now three administrations, why did you guys finally say we need to set a deadline or there for this to begin being enforced or there are gonna be consequences? So when Nixon finally, he vetoed the bill twice. So when he finally signed it, um, then there needed to be regulations, which are done for laws. There are, you know, interpretations of the law to enable those who have to implement it to understand. Sometimes they're small and sometimes they're large. In the case of 504, it was a 42-word law. And it didn't do things like define what was a disability, what was discrimination, what was a remedy. And so uh, there really was a good team of people in HH, health education and welfare that were assigned to look at this law and look at what needed to happen in order to create a good set of regulations. And um, they traveled around the country, uh, they spoke to people, they got a better understanding of what they needed to be looking at for definition. And things like the law says, if you are a recipient of federal financial assistance, you may not discriminate based on disability. So for example, was that gonna mean that all schools that got money from the federal government that were not accessible, physically accessible, we're going to have to make themselves accessible overnight. Well, obviously, that was not going to work. And so what you saw over a three-year period of time was discussions, uh, not just with the disability community, but with entities that were going to be, were going to have to comply with the law. And then they came out with the draft set of regulations. And that draft set of regulations in the Federal Register, people commented, and then it was ready for signature. And as you mentioned, Ford wouldn't sign it. Uh, Carter had said they would. And when he appointed Joe Califano to be the Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare, what Califano said was, well, I want to look at it. I mean, I'm new, and it's not illogical to say that when someone from a new political party is coming in, that you really want to look at what they've done because, you know, maybe there's stuff in there that would not be good. But what we were beginning to learn was that he, like the others, had serious concern about certain provisions. And so they were, they, the department, were doing a review of the regulation. And this was in 1977, because he was elected in 76. But in 1975, there was an organization called the American Association 
of People with Disabilities, which was formed. And it was the first cross-disability coalition in the U.S. Unfortunately, only lasted about seven years. But it um, had as one of its primary goals getting the 504 regulations signed. And so they had an office in Washington and there was an executive director, Frank Bowe, the president in 77, was a woman named Eunice Fiorito and a board of directors that I was on, plus many others. And um, when we started to hear what was going on within HEW, that's when ACCD said, we need to have a specific date by which these regulations have to be signed or we're going to have demonstrations. Because your concern was that they would water down 504. Exactly. It really was our concern that the longer we waited, the longer opposition would come in from hospitals, universities, et cetera, city governments, state governments. And we felt that we had compromised absolutely as far as we would. And that's why April 6th was selected, kind of a random date. And um, yeah. And this was, you know, as as we see really with amazing footage in Crip Camp, a, a just an incredible, unprecedented thing, 28 days, still the longest federal uh, sit-in of a federal building here there in San Francisco. Um, and we have, there's that great dramatic footage, which I know you're always asked about where you and I guess it was like a couple dozen other representatives finally go to try to force the meeting with Califano and instead get some poor <laughs> stooge of his to come out and, and you uh, unload it. I will just quote, and I would appreciate it if you would stop shaking your head in agreement when I don't think you understand what we are talking about, close quote. Um, I guess... So let me tell you what happened yeah, there. Yeah, please, yeah, so, please. So what was going on at that point? Those hearings took place on the fourth floor in San Francisco at the Health, Education, and Welfare Regional Office. And they were unofficial hearings that were conducted by Congressman Philbert and Congressman George Miller. And um, uh, Congressman Miller had come into the building um, the Sunday before, and when he came into a room, myself and uh, another colleague, Pat Wright, were on the phone with a guy named Peter Lavasi. Peter Lavasi was the uh, head lawyer that uh, the secretary had put in charge of the regulations review, and Peter was unofficially explaining to us changes that they were considering. When Congressman Miller came, and he came in very quietly. We told him to pick up the phone. And he listened to Peter talk. And at the end of the conversation, he said to Peter, Peter, this is Congressman Miller. Then he gave him a piece of his mind. And then um, when we got off the phone, uh, George said to the group, you should stay until the regulations are signed. And then they agreed to hold these hearings. And uh, Congressman... Burton wanted a representative from the secretary's office, and they sent this gentleman out who, yeah, kind of poor guy. <laughs> but, and so we had many people who were testifying 
from the community about why 504 was important, what we were concerned about with the review of the regulations. And it was a, a pretty momentous day. So what you guys ultimately accomplished after those 28 days, I think it's pretty clear, paved the way for 13 years later with uh, the Americans with Disabilities Act. And I guess I just wonder, um, as you subsequently became part of the part of the government that you had been challenging from the outside, now you were going to be challenging it from the inside within the Clinton and Obama administrations. I just wonder, was that a adjustment for you, an adjustment to to have to play within the system as opposed to outside of it? So first of all, we did get the regulations signed unchanged. Yes, of course. Yes. That I think was very important. And I think that's one of the reasons why people look to those demonstrations, because it was a group of 150 people um, who in what in uh, the Bay Area. And then, of course, there were disabled people around the country through the ACCD. Um, going in and becoming basically a political appointee was nothing I had contemplated. Um, I worked on Clinton's campaign. And after the election, I the Clinton administration was interested in hiring disabled people in political positions, just like the Obama administration and the Biden administration are. And so I got a call from someone that I knew saying, would I be interested in working in the government? And I remember thinking, never thought about this. And then I thought, okay, there's one job, Assistant Secretary, Office of Special Education and Rehabilitative Services. I said to him, this is the only job I'm interested in. If you've already given it to somebody, don't worry. Um, then I ultimately was offered the position. And of course it was a huge change, but I don't regret it at all. It was a fantastic opportunity that was rewarding, painful, uh, expanded my knowledge uh, because, you know, I mean, for me, some of our, myself and friends call ourselves advocates. <laughs> um, so I was not interested in getting a job unless I could really look at change that I wanted to make. And this particular job was of interest because it covered education, employment, and research. It had 400 staff and nine regional offices. And uh, Centers for Independent Living were under it and parent training information centers, and we had responsibility for monitoring state agencies and education and employment. It was a very exciting opportunity. And I think it enabled us to bring disabled people in both onto staff in regular civil service positions, but also to be much more involved in the work that was going on in development of policies, regulations, grant making in a completely appropriate legal way. But the voices of disabled people were not that prominent. And so we were able to really elevate that, which was very important. And I think, you know, my job at 
the State Department as a special advisor for international disability rights was a totally different job. It was a new job. There were like four of us and uh, the responsibility for our unit was one, to try to get something called the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, which is an international treaty that 175 countries have ratified. It was our job to work within the State Department and other federal agencies to try to get um, the treaty ratified. The way it goes in the US is if there's a treaty for ratification, the president first signs it, which Obama had done, but then the Senate has to approve by 67 votes that they they give permission to the president to ratify. And we worked very hard for a number of years. And ultimately, even though people like Senator Dole, a Republican who is has worked so hard to try to get um, his colleagues in the party to support us was unable to. So I believe we got 61 or 62 votes, we couldn't get it through. So we'll see what goes on in the next four years. Hopefully it's something that uh, this administration will be able to do. So with our last two minutes, if it's all right with you, I wanna just do something that we kind of call rapid fire, just a sentence or two about a, a assortment of random stuff. How did you first hear that Crip Camp was being made into this, this movie? Because I was friends with Jimmy and Nicole, and they called me and asked, what did they think if they made a film about this? How do you feel about the term Crip Camp? I think it's great. People are asking yeah. the question. Therefore, I think it's great. Yeah. When you saw it for the first time and we're looking at this footage of your younger self, what went through your mind? Well, first I started laughing. <laughs> and then I, I really laughed at the scene where um, I'm going to be responsible if the cook is off, what we're going to eat, and, you know, <laughs> taking a vote on whether we're going to get veal or, or lasagna. Yes. <laughs> and kind of pushing through because we're not going to get veal lasagna. So that was funny. Um, yep. But I think what I like so much about this film is that it tells a story over many decades and that the voices of many different types of disabled people are there. And it allows the viewing audience to really get an understanding that there is a political movement and that it has been effective. We're not anywhere near where we need to be yet, but I think the film really demonstrates where we were, where we are, and where we need to go. And that just begs one that I didn't even have written down, but I want to say, it seems like you've always believed that people with all kinds of disabilities should unite to advocate as, as one, whether it's people with physical disabilities or intellectual disabilities or any developmental dis. Why is that, you know, I could see an argument on the other side that, hey, we each have very different things that we're dealing with, but, but you seem to feel that it's important that everyone be kind of united. Well, I believe we all need to be united because we're all facing discrimination. Mm -hmm. And, you know, separating medical from rights and human rights and justice. I think that's really what this is about. So I have a physical disability. Someone may be blind. Someone might have a learning disability. 
depression, anxiety, diabetes, whatever it is. The reason the disability is important is because people um, are experiencing various forms of discrimination based on their disability. So what is important for me is that if you have epilepsy, for example, and you've been uh, fired from your job when they found out you had epilepsy, what's why it's important for me as someone who had polio to be supportive of you is I also lost, potentially didn't get a job because I had polio. So at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter. We were both capable of doing our job. We were denied these jobs or fired because we had a disability. So our ability to come forward and speak about employment discrimination, education discrimination, transportation discrimination, on and on, is really important. And we need to know each other more. And it's not just disability, but I think it's also, you know, we live in a very diverse country. And so it is important that we are really fighting to ensure that black and brown and indigenous LGBTQ, you know, people are all a part of this and that other civil rights groups are, including disability within the work that they're doing. And so really, I think at the end of the day, if the disability community can get it right, it will also strengthen all the other civil rights communities to be able to really serve a portion of the people they represent who they're not really serving effectively now. Is there any chance you would join the Biden administration? Never know. Okay. Uh, but you would be open to the possibility? I'm open to many things. <laughs> okay. Uh, what do you think about the way the state, the current state in, of of the depiction of people with disabilities on film, TV, the media that we report on at The Hollywood Reporter? I mean, I think things are getting a little bit better. Certainly there are more disabled people speaking up and out, but the bottom line is... We have so much further to go and um, we can uh, appreciate where we've been and the progress that we're making. But I would say we're so far behind other groups um, that we a need commitment from the industry itself in a meaningful way. Um, we need to be really, I think, also as a viewing audience, um, need to be speaking to the industry about why it is important to have true reflection of disability. And it's not that every story has to be about disability, but you want to see, you know, just like Hamilton, right? Except Hamilton was a disappointment to me because there was not a visibly disabled person in the performance that I saw. But Hamilton to me is such an out of the box production that the absence of disability really speaks to where we're not yet. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, what in your, in your experience, what has most frequently caused a person, an organization or an interest group to oppose disability rights Do they Is it generally a financial desire to avoid a financial cost or something, or what's the most frequent thing that's caused opposition in your experience? I mean, blatant discrimination. Yeah. Because 
the data clearly shows that it's not a cost issue. There was a study that came out in 1970 from Sears and Roebuck, which talked about accommodations for disabled people. And at that time, they said the average cost was $100. So putting that in today's terms, like $500. Um, But the reality is much of this is based on fear, um, a belief that people cannot perform equally, lack of exposure, um, and preconceptions about who we are. And I think media plays a very important role here because media, when not, when either not depicting us accurately or just not depicting us, you know, we're, we're blank. Um, it allows the prejudice that's existed forever to continue to be, to permeate. And, um, I think the value of having disabled people with all types of disabilities behind it in front of the camera in journalism, advertising, et cetera, is really important. A, it shows that we can do these jobs, but most importantly, I think it also allows our creativity to become a part of what's happening. And we, in my view, clearly see that as entertainment is getting more diverse, uh, that it's bringing more people uh, to the table, more people are learning. Um, And that's really ultimately what I think entertainment needs to be. It's a learning mechanism. Well, and I know that you, for your audio book, had the narration services of Ali Stroker, who I was lucky to see in Oklahoma. She became the first uh, person in a wheelchair to win a, to- a Tony Award. That was that was a big. Uh, that's cool that you guys got to know each other as well. So, um, well, Ali, played me on Drunk History. Oh, that's right as well. Yeah. So that was how you first crossed paths, right? Okay. Um, did your parents live to see what an amazing person and accomplished person you've become? You know, my father died in 1992. And I certainly had been doing many things and he and my mother would be involved. My mom died in after, you know, 1998. So she saw me be appointed to the Clinton administration. She came to the White House. So she definitely, and both of them, I did, I've done a lot of international work. And so, you know, they knew many of my friends who were from other countries. So I think they knew that they had done a good job. Yeah. You have inspired so many people. I wonder who has most inspired you? I think it's a couple of part answer. So when I was really young, I guess it was my mother and people like Mrs. Roosevelt. We ran into her at Hyde Park when we were up there visiting one day. And my mother loved her and took us over and we had to say hello to her. And, uh, but now, you know, that I'm older, the late Marco Bristow, Ed Roberts, Justin Dart, Kitty Cohn, Pat Wright, Bobby Silverstein, uh, Don Galloway. I mean, there's so many people now that really have um, allowed me to work with them and, you know, be able to strengthen what we're doing. This limitless names of people. Yeah. Last question. 
I wonder, and this is this is one of these impossible ones, but I just I guess I wonder, do you find yourself thinking ever, you know, imagining how your life would have been different had you not contracted polio? And if that were to have been the case, I mean, if, if someone, if you, I know that disability activism has been such a huge part of your life and you've helped so many people that I wonder even if it was possible to somehow magically go back in time and, and stop that from happening, would you? No, I don't think so. I mean, for me, my life would not have been what it is. Who knows what it would have been. But if I look at, you know, my family and cousins, things, they've all had very good lives. But I think mine has been pretty unique. And that, whereas, obviously, I believe there should be no discrimination, I think it also allowed the Brooklyn in me to come out on a regular basis. <laughs> I don't think the Philadelphia in me, sorry, Philadelphia. I think it was the, the Brooklyn in me that frequently just naturally comes to the surface of not accepting no. Well, I, I, um, just so admire you. I wish I had known more about you before Crip Camp, but I'm really glad that Crip Camp introduced me to more of what you've done and just thank you for uh for all of that and for doing this and really appreciate it thank you it's really great to talk with you scott you as well be well thank Thanks. you thanks very much for tuning into awards chatter we really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on itunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us.